From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. You're listening, you're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Terra Informa. June is Bike Month here in Edmonton, so this week we are going to revisit an episode from last June by Terra Informer Curtis Blandy on cycling and the environment. I'm Charlotte Thomason. And I'm Catherine Rogers. We'll be your hosts for the next half hour of environmental news and ideas. Before we begin this episode, we would like to acknowledge that this episode was produced in Treaty 6 territory in Amiskwichiwiskaigan. Beaver Hills House, or so-called Edmonton. We are broadcasting from unrecognized Papas Chase Cree territory. The Papas Chase Cree were displaced following consistent efforts from local officials like Frank Oliver to discredit the legitimacy of their treaty rights to this territory and to reserve number 136, now South Edmonton. Not confined to history, this region is also the present homelands of many first peoples who build their lives here, pursue livelihoods, and gather together, including Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, and Dene. Wherever you're listening from, we ask you to consider whose version of history informs your understanding of the land you are on. This week, as we discuss the opportunities and benefits of cycling, we can specifically consider the role of the stewards of the environment in the past and present, protecting the spaces we enjoy and rely on today, as well as our own responsibility to protect the environment and natural spaces for future generations to come. This week, we're listening to an episode by Curtis Blandy from last summer on cycling and the environment. Curtis interviewed Bike Edmonton Executive Director Chris Chan and Luger, Enterprises founder, Luke Grayson, to help us learn about biking in Edmonton and the benefits of commuting via bicycle. As someone who enjoys cycling myself, I'm excited to hear from these folks and their experiences of biking in Edmonton, as well as how to handle our icy winters. Let's listen in to the interview now. Chris Chan, Executive Director of Bike Edmonton. How many years have you been a bike commuter? I started biking uh, as transportation uh, in 2003 uh, when I moved to Waterloo, Ontario, because uh, the transit system there at the time uh, was really, really inadequate for getting around. Um, and so, so I, I realized like, oh, the only way to, to really um, effectively get around um, without a car uh, would be either to walk everywhere, which, which just, just took too long. Um, or get a bike. Uh, and so I bought a bike for $10, $10 from the local, the local bike shop there that, that was similar to Bike Edmonton, uh, to Bike Edmonton's workshops, and rode around all summer. And then when I moved back to Edmonton, uh, I didn't want to give up that, that uh, freedom um, and independence. So I've been biking since then. Uh, can you tell me a bit of the history of Bike Edmonton and kind of where you're at now? So Bike Edmonton was founded in 1980 as the Edmonton Bicycle Commuter Society. Uh, and back then, of course, in Edmonton, um, biking uh, as transportation, and I mean, in all of North America, uh, biking as transportation was really uh, much uh, less mainstream, much less common. And it was really just the, the really um, 
the really gung ho kind of folks who were who were doing it at the time, uh, and who started the society. Um, and one of their very early acts was actually uh, painting um, painting a bike lane on uh, I think it's 89th Ave, the the one that goes in front of Sugar Bowl and Red Bike. Um, when the city uh, turned that street into a one-way road, uh, it was formerly two ways. Uh, when they turned it, when the city turned it into a one-way, uh, overnight a group of people uh, went and painted uh, a contraflow bike lane on it, uh, and that was one of I think that was Edmonton's first bike lane. Um, and the city actually they removed it, of course, uh, but then they turned it, they brought it back, and actually made it into a permanent thing within a few years, Edmonton Bicycle Commuters started up uh, what they called Bike Works, or Bicycle Works, I think, which at the time was like a bunch of tools in the back of someone's van. And then eventually that became uh, various iterations of, of our community bicycle workshops, where people can come in and work on their bikes. Uh, and so since then, we've been doing a lot of advocacy work, um, doing a lot of uh, education and outreach. Uh, and community events, as well as uh, at uh, operating our two nonprofit bike shops. Can you describe for me the relationship that you see between cycling in Edmonton and the environment? There's a bunch of different levels that you can look at it at. Um, you can look at it from kind of the um, individual impact level of of how every trip that you take that isn't in a personal private automobile has less of an impact on on your immediate local environment, as well as less demand on all the resources that go into um, other more intensive forms of transportation. We tend to look at it um, more on the kind of the larger community impact of of trying to encourage a city that's that uh, enables people to make those choices and have those options to choose any way other than driving alone to get around. And so having a city that, that is easy for people to walk and to bike has a really big impact on ground level air pollution, congestion and, and uh, traffic volumes, uh, but also just the, the way that your city feels and the way that your city allows you to, to move about your environment and feel comfortable uh, doing that outside of a car. And so one of the things that I, that I do when I'm, when I'm talking about cycling and giving presentations, for instance, is I, I say, I don't actually care very much whether any individual person chooses to bike or to walk or to drive for any particular individual trip. It doesn't really have that much of a, uh, that, that much significance for, for any particular individual trip. But bigger picture, if everyone across the city uh, has more options and is able to make more of their trips by biking or walking or taking transit, it, that really does add up and has a really big impact, not just on the environment, but on quality of life and what it means, how it feels to, to live in the city. That being said, how do you feel about uh, all the bike lanes that have been put in in Edmonton over the last five years, especially? Yeah, the majority of bike lanes uh, really started coming in at the end of 2017. Uh, and into 2018, uh, what we think of when mostly now when we think of the bike lanes in Edmonton, the protected separated bike lanes. And that was after many years of struggling and, and advocacy and really fighting hard for any little bit of infrastructure. And we got, we had some painted bike lanes in the preceding years, starting in about 2013. The city put down a few painted bike lanes, a lot of them in kind of suburban areas. They were all right. They were an improvement, but a very small improvement. 
the protected bike lanes that the city built in 2017 and and since then really really kind of catalyzed a, a large shift uh, that you that you can just see on the street when you when you go out and stand next to one of these bike lanes you see a lot more people biking a lot of people that wouldn't have been cycling before wouldn't have felt comfortable biking some some of them are just biking for recreation but a lot of them are biking uh, for transportation to get places uh, sometimes to work sometimes just to go to visit friends or social things or get groceries and you see things like families kids biking in downtown Edmonton, which is something that you could never have imagined before these bike lanes, that you would see children biking downtown uh, on streets. So we're really happy with, with these bike lanes uh, such as they are uh, downtown. Of course, there can always be improvements and, and there's always like issues with, with everything. We would love to see them expanded beyond just the, the core of the city where they exist right now. Um, but it's a really good start. Uh, even the small steps that we've taken have had a huge impact. What does ETS do to accommodate cyclists? And is it accessible to use both ETS and cycling? ETS has made a lot of really good strides um, in, in the past decade or so uh, towards uh, supporting those kind of multimodal trips. But ETS itself has been kind of underfunded and, and under-resourced for a long time. They haven't really updated their vision until the new bus network strategy that's now been postponed. But really, we've been operating on a kind of bus system that is many decades old uh, and mostly unchanged in those intervening years. And so what that's meant uh, is that like within the past 10 years, now ETS has bike racks on the front of all of their buses. So now you can bring your bike on buses, on your bus trips with you. Uh, which really helps a lot with that that's kind of last mile problem of okay i can take the bus for most of my trip but getting to the bus stop and getting getting to my final destination from from where the bus takes me either you take a hour and a half bus trip with a bunch of connections or you somehow get yourself to a a more frequent bus but that is farther from your start and your destination and bikes really make a difference for that uh, and solve a lot of issues that are really pretty difficult to solve as a transit system, thinking only in the silo, silo of buses and trains, because it becomes very inefficient to have all these little tiny buses that are taking people all around less frequented destinations, which is the way that ETS has been operating and trying to operate for a long time. So really integrating with those other kinds of transportation makes the transportation really kind of amplifies what you can do with your resources as a transit system. But ETS hasn't really figured out how to fully embrace that yet. Um, they've been so focused on, okay, how do we do trains and buses that, you know, things like the new Valley Line LRT, it's not getting any particular integration with the bike network, uh, not, not intentionally from ETS anyways. The side of the city that does think about, think about bike networks is obviously thinking about how to integrate with transit, but ETS itself isn't really considering that very heavily. And then things like taking your bike on buses, it's quite popular actually, uh, which means that because the buses only take two bikes at a time, sometimes you can go to a bus stop uh, and find that the bike rack is already full. And trying to plan your trips around that kind of thing when you don't know 
whether or not you're actually going to be able to get on the bus with your bike. Even a little bit of uncertainty is enough to make most people say, no, I'm not even going to attempt this. So that really is a big hindrance for proper integration of kind of multimodal transport networks. So there's some good ideas and ETS has made a lot of progress uh, in terms of, for instance, installing bike racks on all of its buses. But, you know, you still can't take your bike on the LRT during peak hours. So you can't, the LRT is not an option for most commuter cyclists. Yeah, and it can be a bit unreliable when you're taking when you're taking buses as well. So there's a, still a lot of work to do there. Can you tell me what you know about calcium chloride as a de-icer for streets and for bike lanes? Yeah, um, the city started a pilot program a few years ago to try, try using calcium chloride to help with de-icing and, and help with snow clearing. Uh, and it started doing so with arterial roadways and kind of major streets as well as it was kind of just contemporaneous with the opening of, of Edmonton's bike lanes, uh, protected bike lanes. Uh, and so they also started using it on, on those bike lanes as well. And from the perspective of a year-round bike commuter, it had a really big impact, positive impact, of helping to keep those bike lanes clear and rideable year-round. Um, you know, I ride with studded tires and probably the majority of experienced year-round cyclists uh, do the same in Edmonton. Even then, it still made a really positive, noticeable impact. So studded tires, uh, studded bicycle tires are definitely helpful, but they don't make you invincible to ice or anything like that. Uh, and just not having ice and snow built up on the bike lanes. And that's mostly where uh, I experienced it because I wasn't riding on major roadways in the wintertime generally. But having those bike lanes cleared made a huge difference. So the calcium chloride does two things. Like it does melt snow and ice, uh, but primarily the, what the city does is it applies it before snow falls uh, and it keeps snow from bonding to the roadway so that when the plows come through, uh, it gets cleared to bare pavement much more effectively and doesn't turn into just like a packed ice sheen or rutted snow and ice. And, uh, what we used to experience a lot of in Edmonton and actually saw more of this winter because the city reduced or the city stopped applying the calcium chloride on part of the roadway that cars go on is, and the city then revert, reverted to more, more, a lot more sand usage. And what you see when you have the sand mixed in with Edmonton snow is you get something that we refer to as brown sugar. And it's this like loose slurry of uh, sand and snow that never packs into anything solid. And that's probably one of the most treacherous uh, surfaces to try to ride through and so not having that on the bike lanes makes such a huge difference and uh, it's been really helpful I think it makes new winter cyclists especially feel a lot less confident when they're slipping around on that kind of um, brown sugar uh, and ice and so really encouraging people to feel like this is something that they can do the calcium chloride treatment I think has been really helpful with that. Do you think there have been any negative drawbacks to using that calcium chloride? Yeah, it's, and it's, it's always been trying to find a balance and, and hoping that the city is responsive uh, and paying attention to such things. So, you know, there's questions of how much and when do they apply it and where do they apply it uh, and are they using too much? And, and we, as an organization that's focused mostly on getting people on bicycles don't really have the background to, to know 
those kinds of technical aspects, but I know the city has been experimenting and playing and learning. They've only been using it for a couple, a few winters now. And so they have been adjusting how they apply it, but it definitely has negative impacts on bicycles themselves. It's quite corrosive. And so lots of people have been noticing that their chains have been wearing out more quickly and that they have to lubricate their bicycles more often and clean more often. It has less of an impact on aluminum components, which most modern bikes are made with, but it still does have an impact there. And of course, the city itself has been doing its own audits and finding that, for instance, it's impacting infrastructure and bridges and stuff like that as well. We haven't really noticed a lot of impact in terms of immediate runoff to like the adjacent boulevards and grass and, and green spaces, uh, which is positive. I know the city also doesn't apply it in parkland, and it's it's just been using it on the on the streets. So there's definitely concerns there. We haven't directly seen any obvious like visible negative impacts um, on the environment, the adjacent environment, but definitely it's it's hard on harder on bikes. I think for a lot of people who have been biking, winter biking for a long time, and it's been certainly for new people who maybe not have the past like historical reference points, but do know what their experience is like now. I think it's it's been overall positive, but we definitely also have noticed, for instance, the first year that the city started applying it, uh, it used it quite liberally. And that was probably the worst year for things like having chains rust really quickly and that kind of thing. What's your favorite area of Edmonton to bike in? My automatic answer to that question is the same as everyone else's, which is the River Valley. Uh, I love our River Valley. I love, I love biking through the forests and smells and the birds and, the, and all of the people in the River Valley. Uh, and you get to see hares and coyotes and deer and owls and marmots and beavers and just everything. Sometimes, especially with the bike lanes that we ha- now have in Edmonton, I don't ride through the River Valley as much as I used to. I used to use the River Valley as part of my commuter routes. But now that we have bike lanes, I often stick to the streets because it saves, it's more direct, it saves going up and down the hill, and it's, it's just easier and faster. But yeah, and then so some, now sometimes I, I do ride in the River Valley and I'm like, oh, I used to do this every day and I love it. It's so beautiful and wonderful and I kind of miss it. Um, but there is also an aspect of biking like in, in the downtown bike lanes and just seeing or biking through Oliver and seeing all of the people out on bikes. Uh, and there's something really enjoyable about just seeing all the other people just out and about and enjoying getting around that is a bit different uh, when in downtown Edmonton versus on a park path in the River Valley somewhere. Yeah. If you could change just one thing about cycling in Edmonton, what would it be? I think what I would like, <laughs> it's one thing, but it's kind of a something that is has a lot of other things attached to it. Uh, I would like for uh, the concept of cyclist to not really exist anymore. Uh, so it's not that people are cyclists, that people become cyclists or identify as cyclists, but it's just people get around the city, move around the city, and they do so in, in a bunch of different ways on any given day for any particular trip. I might drive, I might take the bus, I might walk, I might bike, but I'm no more a cyclist than I am a walkist or a busist or a drivist. And the idea that there's that you have to have this kind of distinct entity with a distinct identity that you need to lay claim to 
in order to ride a bicycle to go to the grocery store. I think that kind of makes it hard, harder for people to imagine themselves as being able to choose that option. So I would love for us to get to the point where cycling is so normalized uh, and so just not notable that the idea of being a cyclist is just a foreign concept. That was Curtis Blandy interviewing Executive Director of Bike Edmonton, Chris Chan, talking about biking in Edmonton and the history of Bike Edmonton, which is not only a resource for Edmontonians for bike repairs, but a community in itself, working to make Edmonton a better place. Currently, Bike Edmonton is open by appointment only for bike and part sales and services. Visit their website at bikeedmonton.ca for more information. You're listening to Terra Informa, a production of CJSR 88.5 FM. Curtis also had the opportunity to interview Luger Enterprises founder, Luke Grayston. His company makes a sugar beet brine called Beet 55, a de-icer similar to calcium chloride, but with additional environmental benefits. That sounds pretty sweet. Let's have a listen. Uh, my name's Luke Grayston, and I'm the founder of Luger Enterprises. Can you tell me a bit of the history of Luger Enterprises? Sure. So the company was founded in June 2014, about six months before that. At the time, I was an environmental health and safety manager in the oil and gas industry. At the end of a long day, a colleague of mine started talking about how they used sugar beets to melt snow on ice on, on roads and stuff, and that piqued my interest. And he ended by saying, uh, if only I had the money to plant them. And I thought there ought to be a better way. So through some sourcing, uh, we came across a company in Manitoba that had the rights in Canada and had people in BC and Manitoba, but nobody in Alberta or Saskatchewan. So with uh, my background in construction, uh, road construction, and having done some snow removal before, I got in contact and uh, one thing led to another. So can you tell me what is Beat 55? So B55, uh, we say, is an environmentally friendlier ice melting product. It's a replacement to the traditional ways of doing things. For example, for as long as I can remember, they've always just been out there shucking salt on the road after the snow and ice had, had formed and people had drove on it. We were often dependent on timing of plows and equipment to get out on the road to get to that, to keep our roads safe after an event. And our product, what it does is it's a proactive product. So you can get out there before the storms, knowing they're going to be coming in, can treat the affected areas. And therefore, as soon as the snow event starts, you've got an instant level of protection, which buys time until the equipment and whatnot can get out there. If there's a significant accumulation to have to plow and remove that stuff. And if, say, you put it down and the, the weather system misses an area, it'll still linger. It has what's called a residual effect. So it'll stay in the area for up to a period of several days. Uh, in the event another system rolls on in behind that and you have the protection. So, What inspired you to create this product? So the patent holders and the founders are out of the United States. Uh, so I can't lay claim to any of the um, creating of it. However, in terms of coming across the product, I felt that this was an area that needed people's attention. Coming from a safety background and, and my father being a EHS guy himself, it's long been in the family that, uh, you know, safe enough isn't good enough. And being reactive will never get anybody anywhere. You have to be prepared, right? Failing to plan is planning to fail. So 
product like this, naturally, it was something that wasn't available. There wasn't a lot of interest at the time. And uh, I thought it'd be a a good thing to uh, pursue. Can you tell me about the environmental benefits of using beet 55 over salt, sand, and calcium chloride? So in terms of regular salt, uh, what we can say is our product is partly salt brine as well. The salt we use in Western Canada for the most part, especially in the prairies, comes from Saskatchewan. It's a leftover product from the potash mine. So out there in Saskatchewan, Fanskoy area, there's basically an unlimited amount of salt or a never-ending amount of salt out there that's available. So uh, we source our salt from there. The difference between us and normal salt is the sugar beet proponent of our product actually produces the corrosion level of salt. So if you think of salt as a baseline of one, kind of like water is one kilogram or one liter, ours is reduced uh, in excess of 70% just by adding the what we call beet 55 concentrate to the salt brine. So it significantly reduces the salt corrosiveness down. Now in terms of sand, sand is purely a traction control product. So sand won't do any melting. From an environmental standpoint, uh, you're kind of comparing, it'd be like fruits to vegetables. One does the melting and one provides the traction. What can be said is, uh, with any product, if, if you use too much sand, it can choke off the vegetative growth along the sides of roads, uh, it clogs up your sewer system, your wastewater systems and whatnot, and gets all over the grass, which, uh, as you know, living in Edmonton here, Edmonton and area, they're going to spend six, eight weeks just cleaning that stuff up every year. So if you can reduce the amount of sand you put down, you can dedicate your equipment and people better to do other things and whatnot. From an environmental standpoint, you'd probably be more looking at reducing you know, emissions from vehicles and whatnot. And then lastly, on the calcium side, uh, comparing to the leading calcium chloride product out there, when you compare sodium chloride to calcium chloride, one has twice as many ions, the calcium chloride. So we reduce the metals. There's 40% less metals and 70% less chlorides in our product versus their product. So just ions alone, if you're putting the same amount of product down, you're putting less into the environment. Some environmental benefits of using our product versus, say, a competitor's product is if you compare the sources of the materials. So, for example, I already mentioned earlier that um, salt in Western Canada is generally sourced as a byproduct from the salt mines in Saskatchewan and whatnot, as well as the sugar beet component of our product is uh, uh, used to be applied to animal feed as a nutrient supplement. So it was a byproduct. It, it didn't have any real use prior to. So so both products are, are, are something that we've been able to combine and find another use for versus, uh, say, calcium and mag chlorides, for the most part, if they're not coming into the country, uh, imported from not just from the United States, but from further abroad, they're being pulled from wells in Western Canada here, which is tapping into our aquifers and our water sources. These products aren't coming out of the ground at usable concentration. So what they do is they put in a big open pit holding areas and let the evaporation take place before it gets close and then they're able to blend it in. So uh, from that respect, you know, uh, anything to do with our water, especially pulling it out from our aquifers and groundwaters, uh, is up to, I guess, each individual person to think whether that's a good use of our water resources. That was Curtis Blandy interviewing Luger Enterprises founder, Luke Grayston, talking about his product, Beet 55, a sugar beet brine de-icer, which could be used as an alternative to calcium chloride. 
Earlier in this episode, we also heard from Bike Edmonton's Executive Director, Chris Chan, talking about cycling in Edmonton and the environmental benefits of commuting on bike. As we head into another summer in Edmonton, we hope that you'll be able to ponder what you learned today on a bike ride through the River Valley. That's all the time we have for this week. We've been your hosts, Charlotte Thomason and Katherine Rogers. Thanks for listening. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, and all of our content is created by a team of volunteers. Big shout out this week to Kurt for this interview and archived episode, for Chris and Luke for their interviews, and to Catherine Rogers for writing and producing this episode. You can reach us for comments or questions via our email, terra at cjsr.com, or message us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Terra Informa. For previous episodes, check out our website, terrainforma.ca. Catch you next week, right here on Terra Informa.